What's up, guys? It's Liz Kelly. Next week, the Ringer Podcast Network is debuting a new podcast with Vampire Weekend bandmates Chris Thompson and Chris Bayo called The Road Taken. Here's a quick trailer with more info. Hello, friends. Welcome to the trailer for The Road Taken with CT and Bayo. I'm Bayo, aka Chris Bayo. I've watched Chris bring his sunny positivity and shredding bass lines to stages all around the world for the past 13 years in the band Vampire Weekend. And I'm CT. Which is short for Chris Thompson. For the past 13 years, you've been my sneakily dark rhythm section partner. We've embarked on a massive world tour and are excited to experience all the thrills and boredom that entails. To help us process our own experiences along the way, we'll be having conversations with peers, idols, and maybe a rando or two. The Road Taken with CT and Bayo, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, coming soon on all podcast platforms. I'm Sean Fennessy. I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show separating fact from fiction. Later in the show, I have an interview with Oscar-winning documentarian Asif Kapadia, whose new film Diego Maradona premieres on HBO tonight, Amanda. Full disclosure, our boss Bill Simmons is an executive producer on this film, but don't let that deter you. This is an extraordinary movie in keeping with Kapadia's last two docs, 2011's Senna and 2015's Academy Award-winning Amy, which takes us to the big picture's big picture. This is a problem in the big picture. Do you know what I mean? Amanda, there was a movie premiering in New York on Friday. You and I were in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. We did not see this movie. We're going to see this movie very soon, but it is without a doubt the movie news of the weekend. And that movie is called The Irishman. And The Irishman premiered to what I would describe as 100% approval rating hosannas from on high. What'd you make of the, uh, the reaction to Martin Scorsese's latest cinematic achievement? excited. It seems great. I mean, you do have to take it with a festival grain of salt. There is something to this movie premiering at the New York Film Festival, like on a Friday. It's a a self-selecting crowd, a self-selecting group of people. but it looked like a lot of fun. The All the images of Pacino and De Niro and Pesci and Scorsese up on this stage having and at the parties having the time of their lives um, indicated to me that this is they're having a great time. And that really, I think, infuses the movie itself, that it is something like it it worked. You know, we it's three hours. We didn't see it for a long time. We, you know, it could be a rehash of some things maybe, but it seems like the gamble paid off on this one. It's not only three hours, it's three hours and 20 minutes. Oh, right. Okay. I was it, trying to be kind. It's based on the 2004 uh, memoir called I Heard You Paint Houses by Charles Brandt. And it stars Al Pacino and Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci. And it uses de-aging technology to make these men seem younger. And that has been a big talking point of the movie up until people saw the movie. It was clouded in a series of, yeah, buts. I think all leading to last Friday. The yeah, buts include the de-aging technology. They include, does Robert De Niro still care about acting? Can mm-hmm. Al Pacino not go over the top in a performance? Does Marty still have it? Can Joe Pesci still speak? We haven't seen him speak publicly in many years. And it seems like all of these things were proven to be kind of false alarms at best. And I think a lot of people seem to think that this is a, the front runner for the best picture. And I, there, there's something kind of amazing to me about that. Now, obviously, the, we're taking a mountain of salt, right. to your point, given the festival atmosphere and it being New York and everything. But still, 
This is a this is the disruption. Right. And we have not seen it yet. And we're very much looking forward to seeing it, but we have not seen it yet. You know, I I will say when the Oscars aired, what day was that in 2019? February 20-something. Late February. Yes. There was a commercial for The Irishman, and it said debuting in theaters and on Netflix this fall. And I think at that moment, you and I considered it to be the 2019 Oscar frontrunner. That's fair. And these things do, it is a little horse racy. It goes back and forth. And so the questions, as you just mentioned, were that, you know, would it live up to that Oscar frontrunner status? And I think the answer is yes. It's definitely yes. I wonder if it it completely resets the expectation of the Oscars this year because I was assuming that it was absolutely going to be a player. Now what this means is there are there's almost certainly going to be two Netflix movies nominated for Best Picture and maybe even three Netflix movies. Mm-hmm. So you've got The Irishman, you've got Marriage Story, and you've got The Two Popes, which premiered A Telluride to, to acclaim. And that signals something significant changing. And a lot of the column writing and the tweeting and the sort of not the, not the day of reaction, but the Saturday-Sunday reaction, I think, to The Irishman, including there was a column by Owen Gleiberman that, from a variety who reflected on, I think, a lot of the anxiety that Roma produced last year about the idea of a streaming service releasing what may be considered by many people to be the best movie of the year, what that means for movie making, what that means for the future of the Oscars. But The Irishman is kind of a, a mega-sized version of that question or problem or whatever you want to call it. I, you could make the case that it's nothing, that, that this is a completely overstated situation. I wrote about Roma in that context last year. And I think the question here is more like, this is a $160 million movie. No studio other than Netflix was going to pay for this movie. It's the kind of movie that I think actually could do pretty good business if you put it in movie theaters. It's got great reviews. It's got a lot of brand names. It's a gangster movie. Could it couldn't? I don't know if it's going to be a $500, $500 million movie, but it could be a $100 million movie. And so with that, the fact that we're never really going to know that because even though it's going into theaters, it's not going to the big theater chains. I think we do have three or four months now of... Netflix anxiety to, to 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 tangle with? Yes, for sure. I mean, I don't want to downplay the narrative of that in last year's Oscars and in every conversation that anyone has about the movie industry right now. You know, I think ultimately people didn't vote for Roma because it was a two and a half hour foreign film and they felt like, you know, values were being shoved down their throat and they just wanted to vote for the, the familiar feel good, like virtue signaling, except not Green Book. Um, I think those voters will like not think twice about voting for the Irishman instead of something else. I don't think Netflix will come into the equation that way for them. I just I kind of think the position that the Irishman has in this in this Oscar season will be less about streaming platforms and more about <laughs> age and values. And it's like I said, it's like a new Oscar bait in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. I could sense that last year, at some point, Alfonso Cuaron just got sick of having to answer questions about Netflix. That after a while, and he was in a very similar situation, I don't think that there was necessarily a company that would have paid as much money for his film as Netflix did to distribute it, even though they didn't originally finance the movie. And I I wonder if Scorsese at some point, now he's probably not going to do a ton of press because he's Martin Scorsese and he doesn't have to, but I wonder if at some point he's just kind of like, enough. The movie is the movie. Yeah. And let's just think about it that way. But for, for our purposes, we do kind of have to, we have to tangle with it. And three nominees from that studio would be, it'd be a fascinating test of the Academy because Marriage Story is definitely one of the best movies I've seen this year. 
And it fit, it checks a lot of boxes for the kinds of movies that Oscar likes, if not Best Picture, at least every category, nomination-wise. And The Irishman is right down the middle, new Oscar bait. So And old Oscar bait. I mean, I think that's the... It, it's kind of the exception in so many ways because it is on Netflix, but it's also Scorsese and De Niro and Pacino and Pesci. It's, it is all of the old things there. I mean, there's just, you know, I was thinking about how excited my dad's going to be just to see the Irishman. Yeah. And they're just— This is dad core. Yeah, but it is also a cinematic triumph, apparently. So anybody who actually cares about movies will also be interested. And they are doing theaters and Netflix. It just kind of, they like four quadranted it for a lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. So it it seems like a last exception as opposed to like the future of movies, if that makes any sense. No, it does. I, I think that best picture contenders come in all shapes and sizes. Some of them are powerhouse 14 nomination kinds mm-hmm. of films and others are admired and respected, and they get three nominations, and we acknowledge that important people made a movie, but that we can just yeah. kind of move on. I think that there was a cha- there was a perception that this was possibly the latter, that no matter what happened, it was going to be respected, and it could have just kind of come and went. Mm-hmm. Instead, based on the reactions, it basically seems like Steve Zalian's more than likely going to get a Best Adapted Screenplay nomination. Rodrigo Prieto is going to get a, a, a Director of Photography nomination. Martin Scorsese is going to get a Best Director nomination. And Robert De Niro and Al Pacino and maybe even Joe Pesci enter two very, very crowded fields. Mm -hmm. So let's set aside supporting actor for a minute because we're going to talk about that a lot more as we get closer and closer to a Tom Hanks movie that's coming out later this year. But just in Best Actor, these are the the primary candidates at the moment. Leonardo DiCaprio for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Joaquin Phoenix for Joker, which premieres this week, Eddie Murphy— for Dolomite is my name, which we're going to talk about very shortly. Christian Bale in Ford versus Ferrari. Adam Driver in Marriage Story. Antonio Banderas in Pain and Glory. Jonathan Price in The Two Popes. And maybe even Adam Sandler in Uncut Gems. I'm sure there are some other people that I don't have listed here that people are going to get mad about. But that's about 10 people. Mm-hmm. Eight of which are hugely famous. Mm-hmm. Hugely famous. That mm-hmm. doesn't even count Brad Pitt, who's going to be there for supporting. It doesn't count Tom Hanks, who I mentioned. Right. I think this is like great news for the Oscars. Like as great as news can get that this many famous people with a Martin Scorsese movie are going to be there. And is there any chance, and this is slight concern troll, but that it's too much good news and that people will sense that the Oscars is desperately trying to maintain its relevance by celebrating its most famous people? I mean, when are they not trying to desperately maintain itself by celebrating its, well, you know. Who the- won Best Actor last year? Rami Malek. No one knows who that is. Sure, but $800 million worth of people, maybe it's over a billion now, saw it. They didn't, they didn't Rami Malek didn't win the Oscar last year. Freddie Mercury That's won the Oscar last true. year. And a, like a lot of people who love Queen were like, oh, that guy, wasn't he great? They have no idea that he was on Mr. Robot. They have no <laughs> idea who he is now. It's just kind of like, wow, those teeth definitely look like Freddie Mercury's teeth. Did you see the photo? Someone tweeted a great photo of Rami Malek recently wearing a backpack and some jeans and a button-down shirt. And they said he looks like an NYU student on his way to Think Coffee. <laughs> it was really great. Anyway, I encourage people to check out Twitter once in a while. Uh, yeah, you're right. Freddie Mercury did win that Oscar. I think in general, it's, it's a pretty great thing for the Oscars that all of these people are going to be there. And I think we're going to probably focus on that a lot over the next few months. Supporting Actor 2 is really interesting. Just the idea of Al Pacino getting a chance to win another Oscar for maybe a better performance than Son of a Woman. You know, with that comes also the big question of will Scorsese get a second Oscar? 
And, you know, in the back of my mind, I had been kind of planning for the Tarantino Best Director Oscar. I had sure. been I had been banking on this for a few months. And now I'm like, and there's a, notably a really fun Q&A between Martin Scorsese and Quentin Tarantino on the Directors Guild of America's website that published today. But I, the idea of Marty's number two stealing from Quentin's number one is a little bit painful for me. Well, I feel like we had this conversation like four or five months ago, which was that this Oscar season shaping up to be like Tarantino versus Scorsese. And like the, it, you know, it's basically, again, we haven't seen the movie, but the Irishman does apparently have this quality of like um, a bunch of men at the later period of their life. Uh, looking back, taking stock of things, one last hurrah, maybe. So it's like, uh, you know, a pirate looks at 40 with Once Upon a Time and a pirate <laughs> looks at 80 with The Irishman. It's true. I mean, it's like two generations of directors um, who are extremely important in terms of shaping what came next for their, you know, respective um, peers. So I, it's interesting. It's like pretty exciting as a face-off. I mean, the most classic Oscars thing would be for us to talk about like Scorsese versus Tarantino for six months and then like, I, you know, I don't know what wins. Bong Joon-ho, baby. <laughs> I was going to say, it's it's J.J. Abrams who's directing Skywalker, right? Yes, it is. Yeah, so I mean, like, literally, that that would probably be the most Academy thing of all time. To me, the most Academy thing would be Sam Mendes winning for 1917. Yeah, it's a great That point. would be the thing where that you'd be like, point. really? Like, we're not giving it yeah. to Marty or Quentin Tarantino or even having any fun and giving it to Bong right. Joon-ho or Baumbach or somebody like that. Or a woman, God forbid. God forbid. <laughs> I mean, Greta possibly could be competing this year. Right. Um, there's only a handful of... People who've won, there's one guy who's won four Best Director Oscars, and that's John Ford, largely considered the greatest director of all time, though I don't agree with that. There's two who have won three, Frank Capra and William Wyler. Notable that all of these men haven't made a movie in 75 years when <laughs> there were not as many people making movies. And then there's a whole gang of people that have won two. Among them, Alfonso Cuaron and Alejandro Gonzalez Inarritu and Milos Forman and Elia Kazan, David Lean. Ang Lee has two. Many people don't realize that. Steven Spielberg, of course, has two. Oliver Stone has two Oscars. Wow. Billy Wilder, Robert Wise, Fred Zinneman. On the one hand, you've got a very historic collection of filmmakers, and Scorsese, of course, fits right in here. But on the other hand, you can't really use this to determine who is the greatest director of all time because I don't see Akira Kurosawa's name here at all. I don't see Stanley Kubrick's name here at all. I don't even see Francis Ford Coppola's name here. So there's a lot of people not quite on the list. And, the, you know, the Oscar sometimes is very stupid. And so if we find ourselves, and no disrespect to Sam Mendes, who uh, I think is a very good filmmaker, and I'm quite looking forward to 1917, but if he wins there, right. and, and Scorsese doesn't get his second, and I, I'm not, how many more movies do you think Martin Scorsese will make, if you had to guess? I don't know. I mean, there is kind of a... Again, we have not seen this movie, but I did get kind of like a, a, a not quite a swan song, but a, a an end of an appreciation type vibe to this. So uh, at the same time, they're just like still out here being like, isn't it great that we made movies? These guys are having a lot of fun. I can't believe we've gone this long without playing the De Niro clip. Can we play the De Niro clip? We have to play the De Niro clip okay. right now. Uh, Robert De Niro, for those of you who are sleeping under a rock, appeared on Reliable Sources with Brian Stelter today. And here's what he had to say. Fox come after you. I remember the Tonys when he got up there and cursed. A lot of Fuck criticism em. of you. Fuck them. Okay, well, you know, this is cable, Sorry. so it's not an FCC violation, Sorry. but it is still a Sunday morning. Well, I we're, do wonder we're why you choose to go that let way. Let me say something. Why do you we choose are to go a, that We way? are in a moment in our life, in this country, where this guy is like a gangster. He's come along and he's said things, done things we say over and over again. This is terrible. We're in a terrible situation. 
that's the funniest thing I've seen in about five weeks. What, what, do you think that that has any impact? Well, first of all, let me just say this. Yeah. Robert De Niro is running. He's running yeah. definitely for Best Actor, possibly for President of the United States of America, certainly for um, Sweetheart of the Oscar show here at The Big right. Picture. Do you think that people like this version of Bob De Niro? Do you think that they want this person to be... Yes, of course, okay, because okay. don't you want him to be the De Niro that you've seen in movies? Like, you don't want him to be the intern. You want him to be on, like, which, like, all respect to Nancy Myers. I like the intern. That's a good I movie. I do also like the intern. I've thought a lot about it. But you want De Niro to be out in public being like, that guy's a gangster. Fuck him. <laughs> like, that, you actually do want to believe that these guys are as, like, titanic presences at the the people that we have like made them to be in our minds. But how strange for that to come across on reliable sources with Brian Stelter on a <laughs> Sunday like, morning. It's well, really w- just well, a weird place well, to show I just up. I took that as that was on Sunday morning after the Irishman premiered on Friday in New York to just through the roof, rapturous reviews. And these guys are so happy. They're just like, we did it. And you can see it in the party photos. I mean, like they're, they're, um, with all respect, slightly older gentlemen, they don't always um, appear in public or seem very happy about it. And they were just like, we d- we're we back, baby. So I brought it up because it's like, I, you know, I think after this reception, maybe Scorsese is like, cool, I'm on it. Let me make four more movies or however many I can fit in. Uh, I do feel like the reception is encouraging these gentlemen to share with us, which is great. The more the merrier by me. Definitely the more the merrier. On the opposite side of the spectrum, I don't know if you saw the clip of Joe Pesci being interviewed in the immediate aftermath of the premiere of The Irishman, but the cast and crew were on stage and Kent Jones, who uh, curates the New York Film Festival, was talking to each actor and, and, and Scorsese about the process. And Kent Jones flung, a, I think, a pretty obvious softball that in the Brian Curtis parlance here at The Ringer would be called a talk about. And he mm-hmm. said, talk about appearing in movies after not showing up in one for, you know, over 20 years. And Joe Pesci took a beat and he said, no. (laughs) And then he handed the microphone off because he didn't want to talk about it because he doesn't care. And it's two versions of, on the one hand, arrogance, but on the other hand, a kind of well-deserved state of power. And if Robert De Niro wants to go on TV and say, fuck him, he kind of can do that in a way that a lot of other people, could you imagine if, if Tom Hanks or Julia Roberts went on TV and, and said fuck him about Donald Trump. I actually Trump. can remember can imagine Julia Roberts doing it and would enjoy it. That would that be fun. she's a little edgy. Like that's But kinda... does she never shows up and does conversation? I mean, she when was the last time she showed up and had a conversation on a talk show? It's got to be years. Yeah, I'm just on Oprah. So and that was a long time ago. It's true. And you know, she shows up at the Didn't she give Best Picture last year? Or she gave one of the major that sounds right. awards at the Oscars last year when she was wearing her formal glasses and was just like I'm Julia Roberts. She did give out Best Picture because she, like, worked it for a minute before she oh, had to yeah. say Green Book. You remember that? She was like, I know where I am. I know you don't want to hear this right now, but I'm just going to say it anyway. That was one of her best performances yeah. in years. <laughs> so I can't. I, you know, it's, it is true that you want something different from Robert De Niro than you want from Tom Hanks, which we'll talk a lot more about in the coming weeks. But this is definitely what I want from Robert De Niro. So A+. plus. A+, plus from from Bob. As far as The Irishman goes, you know, we'll talk about it a lot more here on the show. The movie is not hitting theaters, and even by the definition of theaters, it's a bit complicated, but not hitting theaters until November 1st, and then a few weeks after that, it'll arrive on Netflix. I would guess that uh, Adam Naiman, Chris Ryan, and I will do a Top 5 Scorsese podcast. I would guess that you and I will talk about the movie in great detail Mm -hmm. when it's 
finally released. You know, let's make a transition to stock up, stock down, because there is an elegant conversation to have about this relatedly. If it goes bust, you can make 10 to 1, even 20 to 1 return, and it's already slowly going bust. Let's talk about stock up, and it's Eddie Murphy. But before we talk about Eddie Murphy, I want to talk to you about the conversation around Netflix movies, because this is a bit complicated for us. So it's a little bit inside baseball, but I want people who are listening to the show to kind of understand how tricky Netflix is making this, I think, for not just the critterati or even cinephiles, but the public at large. So the movie The Laundromat, which Mm -hmm. Steven Soderbergh directed, which we have not discussed really hardly at all on this show, is in theaters right now. It's in Los Angeles. It's in one theater, The Landmark. I haven't seen it, and you haven't seen it. We're seeing it this week. Dolomite Is My Name, which is the new movie starring Eddie Murphy, who has been featured in the New York Times and who is arriving again once more before us as one of the great comedy champions of the 20th century. That movie opens technically on Friday, and it's opening at the Alamo Draft House in downtown Los Angeles, my wife's favorite movie theater. And it's interesting because I don't know if you can bring the same kind of, the right kind of energy to a movie that only opens in one theater and isn't going to be expanding. You know, this isn't like when The Farewell opens in 15 theaters across the country, but we know it will eventually get to 1,500. Mm -hmm. It's opening in just a handful of theaters because those are the only theaters that will host the movie. So we're going to encounter this again with The King in a few weeks, and then, of course, with The Irishman, and then, of course, with Marriage Story. And that's four or five. And then The Two Popes, too. That's four or five big movies that are coming out this year that people are not going to get to see in a movie theater for the most part. And those that do, they're going to have to hunt it down to find it. And the timing of when we discuss these things, I think, is a bit complex. So I want to talk to you about Dolomite is my name and Eddie Murphy. But I I have to I think we have to be mindful of the fact that it's unless you were at the Toronto Film Festival, you you probably haven't seen the movie. And so we'll do mostly narrative bound conversation. okay, and not plot conversation, though. Narrative to Eddie Murphy. Exactly. Right. So we're not going to spoil it for everyone. Certainly not going to spoil the movie. And we won't be spoiling any of We'll make a sincere effort to not spoil any of the, especially these Netflix movies, which are are harder to come by than your, this movie's out in 3,000 theaters. Check it out if you can. For example, Joker's out on Friday. We'll be seeing it this week. Jason Concepcion and I will have a conversation. We'll publish a podcast probably on Thursday night. So if you've seen it, you can listen to it right away. And then on Monday morning, you and I will talk about Joker. Mm -hmm. That's different to me than Dolomite is my name. So Eddie Murphy is back. Sort of. He'll be back in one to four weeks, depending on your location. (laughs) I know I've just said a a lot of confusing things about the state of movies, but I do think it's kind of important because it's kind of important to the the rollout of enthusiasm for somebody, too. Mm -hmm. So historically, with a movie like Dolomite is my name, when Eddie Murphy comes back, and and this actually happened once before with Dreamgirls, when Eddie Murphy came back and had a serious role and was nominated for an Oscar, the movie just came out and people saw it. And they're like, ah, love Eddie Murphy. And there was energy behind it. Yeah. Now, Eddie Murphy has already been profiled in the New York Times. We've already heard that he's going to be hosting SNL in December. This movie is coming sort of in a few weeks, but also Friday, but who knows? Do you think that this kind of star rollout can be as effective as that 3,000 screen rollout that I was describing? Well, I think it depends what your end goal is. I think getting people to watch the movie and winning Eddie Murphy and Oscar are kind of two different tracks at this Mm -hmm. point. So in terms of getting people to watch the movie, I think 
Probably. You know, I think at some point what you have to do is put Eddie Murphy in your movie and then serve it to people on Netflix when it's on Netflix. And that is how the most people will see this movie. And I think that is still the most effective way. I have a very quick anecdote about this. Yeah. I recently, um, I got my own Netflix account. Really big news for me. I had been sharing with my husband. But um, you mean you're paying for a separate account? No, actually, it's I mean, it's a complicated thing with the people at Netflix are lovely. They do screeners differently, but they Ah. assign it to an email. So then I had to say whatever. IT with Amanda is very boring. (laughs) But basically what it means is that I opened a Netflix account that was brand new and it had no learned behavior about what I watch or what anyone watches. And so I assume what it was serving was just what people like to watch, like the most popular things on Netflix. I, You know, maybe it did something based on location. Again, I I don't know totally how the algorithm works, but it was really fascinating to scroll through and see the categories that were presented and the types of movies that were presented, which it will not surprise you to learn are very different from what Amanda watches at home because I just like rewatched The Crown and then also related Crown content. Um, but it was, you know, it it was a lot more blockbusters, action movies, but it was just, it was so clear suddenly of just like, oh, well, I would click on that thumbnail. I would not click on that thumbnail. It was like me rediscovering the power of the algorithm. Because normally when I go to Netflix, I'm like, I'm trying to watch something for this podcast or because someone told me about it or something. But that's not how most people watch it. They just like open their Netflix. They're like, hey, there's this giant thing. I guess I'll watch it. Yeah, I think it has the arcade effect where when you're a kid yeah. and you walk into an arcade, you don't say, I only want to play one game. Now, maybe you like one game more than another game, but you're probably like, I'll play five games. I'll play nine games. I want to play skee-ball. I also want to play Rampage. I also want to play Street Fighter 2. Like, that, I think that Netflix has created a kind of expectation where you're like, I can bounce around. I can do a lot of different kinds of things. Right. That's probably what you're seeing, too, which is that there is a, a broad approach to the way they're serving people. Right. It just reemphasized the aspect of, like, discovery in that process, which is not normally how I use it, but is how I think most people do use Netflix and is actually like part of this service that they offer. Um, so that's a long way of saying is that I think they'll just put Eddie Murphy in a thumbnail or like five different thumbnails and they'll rotate through them. It's very funny. The politician uh, debuted last week, which is a Ryan Murphy show. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow is on it. I have only been getting Gwyneth Paltrow thumbnails um, because it knows who I am. Speaking so to your needs. But, you know, that's a star rollout. Just Eddie Murphy's face, Eddie Murphy in large number in large letters on your screen. People will click on it. And then, you know, if someone happens to read the New York Times and it's like, oh, Eddie Murphy, he's back. Maybe I will check out that movie. That's great. But I think that's gravy on what they're trying to do. I think you're probably right. It's probably a more effective rollout ultimately on October 25th when the movie hits the service to just show people Eddie Murphy in the Dolomite costume. Yeah. You know, what was your level of familiarity with Dolomite before this movie? Had you seen the original Dolomite starring no, Rudy Ray Moore? So the movie itself, this is not spoiling anything, is essentially about the making of the rise of Rudy Ray Moore, who was a middle-aged comedian working in Los Angeles, who was really struggling to have find success, and created a character called Dolomite that was born of a lot of sort of old African-American tales and jokes and somewhat out of the griot tradition, somewhat out of the your mama joke tradition, and blended all that stuff together to create this sort of black superhero slash parody. And the movie follows the arc of Rudy Ray Moore's career. Now, the movie Dolomite, the original movie, was a major cult success for years and years, a big-time midnight movie. It's, it's, not, it's a bad movie. Mm-hmm. It's, it's bad. It's funny. 
And the question of whether it's meant to be funny is an interesting part of this story and this rollout and Eddie Murphy in general to me. Because in the original Dolomite, you can see kind of boom mics falling into the frame. The set collapses during a sex scene at one point. And that's part of the bit. They don't stop the movie. They make that a part of the movie. And so you can't tell if it's like kind of an airplane style spoof or, or if it's actually just a really shoddily made movie. And Dolomite Is My Name goes to great lengths to recreate some of the making of of this movie. It's interesting for Eddie to be re-examining or returning by examining a hero of his who never quite got his credit at the time, never quite got his critical cultural due in his time. Because I think Eddie, even though he is, I don't know, probably one of the five or six biggest movie stars of the last 40 years, Mm -hmm. I don't know if people really respect Eddie Murphy. And whether you can or should is an interesting conversation leading into award season. Do you think that this is a person that is sort of um, I don't, been overlooked or been dismissed from the popular consciousness? Like, what is your your sense of Eddie Murphy to people in the world right now? I mean, I, what you said is true that I think he's simultaneously like one of the biggest movie stars and just stars, actors, comedians of our lifetimes. And also that people don't take comedians as seriously. And I think that's kind of a lot of the issue, both in both in society, but specifically with the Oscars. It's much harder to win a, a, an Oscar for for a comedy. It basically rarely happens. Very rarely. Especially like Kevin Klein in, in A Fish Called Wanda. Right. Uh, you know, very rarely. And it's usually supporting if it does. Um, and that it's just not considered an art in the or an achievement in the way that, say, serious drama is or something. And, you know, I think in terms of just culture at large, that has changed a lot in the last five and 10 years. I mean, God, there are so many comedy podcasts of people like explaining the jokes to us, which I think has limited returns. But at least like comedy as an art form, these people as um, experts who have a craft they have honed over years, I, I think that that people have become more aware of that generally. But in terms of how good he is, how how great a comedian Eddie Murphy is, and how great a movie star that he was, and how many people saw so many of his movies, which is just kind of impossible to do now, I think all of that is probably taken less seriously than it is for, say, Tom Hanks. Yeah, I was thinking a bit about Green Book while I was watching Dolomite Is My Name because it's an example of a hugely successful comedy figure, Peter Farrelly, shifting into something a little bit more sincere that still has humor, but is more indicative of the kind of thing that is celebrated largely by prestigious culture. Now, I would argue that there's something about Mary, Dumb and Dumber, and Kingpin are all vastly better, Mm -hmm. vastly better than Green Book. Those are three of my favorite movies of, of the 90s. I love those movies. But he, Peter Farrelly was never going to get into the best director conversation by making those kinds of movies. And Eddie Murphy, even though he's playing a comedian here, he's giving a, a pretty dramatic performance. And he was not likely to be recognized by the Academy for his performance in Trading Places, even though that's one of the funniest things that has ever happened in a movie. It's just Eddie Murphy in Trading Places or Eddie Murphy in Coming to America. Mm-hmm. You know, Eddie Murphy has given you're smiling at me because yeah. he's just given us a lot of joy over the years. He's just we did a Beverly Hills Cop rewatchables the other day. 
I don't even think Beverly Hills Cop is that great of a movie, but there's so many times where Eddie Murphy just says something or looks at you or looks at a character where you're just taken away by him. And it's it's presence. We talk a lot about movie star charisma and that thing of you put a camera on someone and they just fill up the space. And he has that. Majorly. And, and, it, and he has it in a slightly different and more... In a rarer way than a lot of movie stars because you just, Brad Pitt just looks like Brad Pitt, but Eddie Murphy's funny. You know, it's just, there is a very special tone. He can change, I think it's Wesley Morris who always says, can they just like change the property of the room around them? And he definitely can and also make everyone laugh. And I think he's doing that in this movie too in a big way, which is interesting. Whether he actually gets into the best actor conversation is unclear, though I think the, the the course he's charted here is a very smart one. So this is just his fourth live action film this decade. Do you know the name of his last movie? No. It's called Mr. Church. It's a very sentimental drama that is not very good that was released in 2016. So that's crazy. Three years ago, there was an Eddie Murphy movie called Mr. Church. No one's ever seen it. No one cares about it. It's completely meaningless to the culture at large. Going forward, he's starting a stand-up tour soon which will culminate in a Netflix stand-up comedy special, which is fascinating because Eddie Murphy is one of the greatest stand-up comedians of all time, but he is sort of the the key figure in the what's aged the worst department. You know, like a lot of the comedy in Raw and Delirious, his two mega-famous stand-up specials, is just in the traditional category of like, can't say that anymore, can't even think that anymore. None of that is going to work, you know? And he addressed some of that in this great New York Times profile with Jason Zinneman uh, talking about some of the jokes about AIDS that he made at the time or uh, gay people, or women. Like, he really was very insensitive to what 2019 would perceive. Mm -hmm. I don't really think that that's going to hold him back, though. I thought he was kind of, like, briefly contrite about those things. Clearly communicated that he was a different kind of a guy. It was a different kind of a time. And I don't—I haven't seen anybody out there trying to cancel Eddie Murphy. Well, it's, you know, early days. It's early days. I mean, and I think that that's that's a separate conversation that, honestly— I don't really want to get into because I think... Should we make this a comedy podcast? (laughs) No. But I think also, I think he handled that New York Times profile very well. And he was, as you said, it's just like, I was a young person. When I watch it now, I, you know, I I could see what I was going through and it's a different place. So I think that goes a long way. I mean, a lot of people can't say that, which is mind-boggling to me in 2019, but... No, I don't. I think he is also so, um, he's so famous and also has kind of evolved past, like we have already seen the evolution of Eddie Murphy past Raw. You know, we have seen like the Dr. Doolittle phase of Eddie Murphy. He's kind of gone from really, really shocking comedy to biggest movie star of all time to like biggest movie star of all time who's in movies that you watch with your kids. So Daddy Daycare. Yeah, yeah, he's all the way around to to, to fatherhood. But if you've demonstrated that change over time in public already, I do think that that goes a long way to people giving credence to the idea that you don't believe those things that you once said. Eddie Murphy has eight children. Yeah. Isn't that extraordinary? Right. I'm terrified by the prospect of one. (laughs) He's also hosting SNL, which is a pretty big deal because he's returning to the site of his launch. Mm -hmm. And he famously has shied away from appearing on the show for years. There's a very famous... David Spade, look mom, a falling star joke on Weekend Update, showing a photo of Eddie, which then led to Eddie basically denouncing SNL for many, many years. So him coming back. And in that profile by Jason Zinneman, he said that he's going to be doing Buckwheat. He's going to be doing Mr. Robinson. And he's going to be doing his 
old school SNL characters, which I don't even know how those characters will play in 2019, but that's kind of fascinating for him to make a concerted effort to remind people why you love Eddie Murphy, which is all part of a strategy. It's maybe part of a personal strategy for him to kind of go out on the right kind of note, but it's also an award strategy. You know, it's also a, it's a campaign strategy. And I wonder if you set all that stuff aside, if you think that his work in Dolomite is my name is, is truly awards worthy. If it's, it's, if it, if it deserves to be in the conversation, even though we know that deserves to be as a meaningless phrase when it comes to actual Oscar voting. Yes and no. I mean, it is such a quintessential Oscar performance. And there you are watching it and are just like, oh, hey, Eddie Murphy's back. And there are scenes that it doesn't matter what's going on around him. And it's not even really about the character that he's playing. It's just like being there with Eddie Murphy, who is fascinating to watch on camera and it does engage with it's it's a story about as you said a person who maybe did not get as much respect or recognition as they they deserved and so it's eddie and murphy engaging with the extra curricular narrative of of his life and career which i just i really do think the oscars like that they like they like a comeback or someone coming back from some time in the cold they like someone who is thoughtful and reflective and they like a performance that has meaning in some way and i do think that 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 narrative gives it some extra heft there's one other thing working in dolomite is my name's favor which is it's a movie about hollywood it's a movie about movie making mm-hmm. and there are not as many of those this year once upon a time in hollywood of course is one of those but you know as we know those movies tend to do well during Oscar season. So we'll we'll keep a close watch on Eddie Murphy. And maybe we'll talk a little bit more about Dolomite is my name once more humans have seen the film. You know, just for stock down, I I just wrote The Irishman, um, <laughs> even though we just sang its praises and and reflected on all of its success, because I do think that there's going to be a little bit of um backlash to the uplash. You know, a little bit of well, I, do, sure. do we really want to celebrate this? You cetera, know, but it's it's October one, so we have we have five months. I think that's true for literally every single thing that we will talk about on this podcast. It's it happened for once upon a time in Hollywood. It's just kind of not for Thanos. Okay, Thanos is still rising in the ranks, number one in my heart, Great. best supporting actor. Thanos, I am inevitable. Okay. Can we just do, like do some photos for this podcast of you and a giant Thanos head? I I want to be I want to I want like a photo. I took a photo with Werner Herzog in this room mm-hmm. once. I want that photo, but me and Thanos. Okay. Just just arm in arm. Do you want it to scale? Well, he's tall. Right. That's what I'm saying. He's like not. He's like nine <laughs> feet tall. Right. That's so he probably know. wouldn't fit in this room ultimately. Okay. But I, th- I think just barely. You think gauntlet or no gauntlet? You think he'd let me wear the gauntlet in the photo? The gauntlet is the glove. That's the glove. Yeah. Okay. I, that's very confusing to me, but um, I don't know. Doesn't the isn't the gauntlet very powerful? Doesn't it suck away your soul or something? No, uh, okay. Thanos. If you're listening, please DM me. Um, we'll figure this out. Get you on the big picture. <laughs> Amanda, let's go to the big race. Okay. Well, Mama, look at me now. I'm a star. I mean, we're going to talk about best documentary, and we're going to talk about it for two reasons. One, as I mentioned earlier today. Diego Maradona debuts. It's from an Oscar-winning filmmaker, Asif Kapadia. I spoke to him later in the show. It's a pretty brilliant movie. We'll talk about it a little bit here. And also because Docs NYC has released their feature list of 15 films to keep an eye on. And Docs NYC is an organization 
runs a festival in New York every November, and they screen a lot of documentaries. They choose 15 documentaries every year to spotlight. Those 15 documentaries usually more or less coincide with the Academy shortlist, which is released, I believe, in January at the top of the year, maybe even in December. And it's an interesting list of movies. I'll briefly list the movies, Mm -hmm. and then maybe we can talk a bit about the category, because it's a tricky category that a lot of people, most regular folk, don't get a chance to see these movies until we get into Academy season, and and this year more than ever for a couple of reasons. But Diego Maradona was on the list, as I mentioned. American Factory, which came to us from Netflix. Apollo 11, which is one of the few big doc hits of the year, which Neon released. One Child Nation, which Amazon bought out of Sundance. The Edge of Democracy, which is Petra Costa's story of the Brazilian government. That's Netflix as well. The Cave, which Nat Geo has. That movie is going to be released later in October and was a huge hit out of the Toronto Film Festival. The Biggest Little Farm, Neon also released this, also a bit of a hit this year in the doc category. Knock Down the House, the famous AOC documentary that uh, was purchased out of Sundance and aired on Netflix. The Kingmaker, which is Lauren Greenfield's upcoming film about Amelda Marcos. Lauren Greenfield, perhaps the greatest chronicler of wealth in this country. The Great Hack, which was also a Netflix movie about Cambridge Analytica. Ask Dr. Ruth, which Hulu uh, released earlier this year, also out of Sundance. And Honeyland, also out of Sundance, which Neon also released. And The Elephant Queen, which is Apple TV Plus's first foray into documentary. Incredible. And The Apollo, which is HBO, Roger Ross Williams, who's a governor uh, with the Academy, his documentary about the Apollo in New York City. And For Sama, which is a PBS documentary. That's the full list. 15 movies. Now, almost all of these movies have been released. I think only three have not yet seen the light of day. The Apollo, The Elephant Queen, and The Cave. How many of these movies have you seen? I think I've seen four. Pretty good. Thank you. Pretty good. I was very proud of that last night and shared that fact with you, and you didn't respond. So I'm glad that I'm getting a moderate gold star. I've seen 12. Well, yes, but you're you. I'm way ahead of the curve this year, though. Historically, I, this is the category I struggle with the mm-hmm. most. And and frankly, it's it's gotten a little bit easier to see movies like this, in part because five or six of these movies are really appearing on TV first. I mean, Ask Dr. Ruth hit Hulu months ago. You know, The Elephant Queen is going to be available on November 1st, the day they turn on Apple TV+. Plus. The Apollo is going to be on HBO later this month. There's four Netflix movies on this list. Mm-hmm. There's a Showtime movie on this list, Diego Maradona, which we're discussing. You can see on HBO tonight. And it is an interesting thing that's changing about the documentary format because last year, the big story about documentaries was theatrical. Three Identical Strangers, what a huge hit. Free Solo, what a huge hit. The Mr. Rogers film, what a huge hit. RBG, what a huge hit. All four of those movies did great business in theaters, and people felt good about them. Now, my my prevailing theory about that is that MoviePass was active yeah, in 2018. That's a good point. And it feels a lot easier to go see a doc in theaters when you can use MoviePass to pay for it, as opposed to your hard-earned $18. I think that's a little unfair to documentaries, especially if you've seen a movie like Apollo 11, which you should see in theaters. Yes. But for the most part... A lot of these movies were scooped up before they even had a chance to appear in theaters. You know, these Netflix movies, I think a movie like Knock Down the House could have done pretty good indie film business, but it appearing on on a streaming service is interesting. Do you think that that's, unlike maybe the Dolomite is My Name or the Irishman issue, do you think it's better for these movies, like Icarus, which won two years ago, which was on Netflix, to appear on a streaming service first? I do think they make more sense just... In streaming context, they're just watchable at home in a way that narrative films, maybe you use a li- lose a little of the immersiveness or the attention span and people are looking at their phones or whatever. But I think documentaries are 
you know, they're often quite visually beautiful. And I think we should talk about like a couple of these movies and the footage that they get. And it would be exhilarating to see it on a big screen. And I was thinking a lot about how you and I um, both went to see Pavarotti in theaters. And it was just like watching a Pavarotti concert. But the fact that you got to hear it so loud was really essential to the experience. So I'm not trying to take away from the theatrical experience, but I do think Documentaries just like they're really, really watchable at home. They kind of fit with the, huh, I'm curious about this. Okay. And then suddenly you're sucked in and 90 minutes have gone by and you're like, wow, I would really like to know what's going to happen at this factory or whatever the case may be. And so I think, I think it's always best for movies to be where people are going to watch them. I, I like, I just fundamentally think that that's the case. I agree with you. A couple of these movies are, are more quote unquote cinematic than others. You know, we mentioned Apollo 11, which you and I have mm-hmm. talked about a few times on this show already this year. I think Honeyland, in a way, is a very cinematic movie. I didn't see it in theaters, and I watched it at home, and I could sense the loss of experience that I was hoping to have. On the other hand, I do think that a movie like The Great Hack kind of plays better as, like, wallpaper movie. You know, it's it's packed with information. Mm-hmm. It's got a couple of really interesting interviews in it. It's not my favorite documentary I've ever seen, but it did help me understand Cambridge Analytica a little bit more deeply. And it didn't require rapt attention. And I wonder if that movies like that will be rewarded more in the future. I mean, I think we've certainly found that to be the case for scripted and narrative films that we've talked so much about, like the ideal, quote, Netflix movie, which is a little more fast paced and is switching all the time to keep your attention, but also doesn't require you making an event out of it all the time. And I think I think that's true. I think that's also just... The appeal of a documentary ultimately is you don't know about something and you're kind of like, oh, I guess I'm curious. And then it's that it's that idea of discovery of like, huh, wow, I didn't know that I was going to be so excited about this. And I do think this streaming surfing around experience rewards that. What what is the best of the four that you've seen so far this year? Or what did you like the most? I was absolutely blown away by American Factory. It's a pretty amazing movie. And I I will say this in public. I a few months ago or maybe a, like a month ago, I remember you saying to me, I know that you are not going to want to hear this and like I don't want to be your dad, but American Factory is like really amazing. You'll really really like it. Uh you were 100% right. Thank um, you. Wow. It was no, you were just totally right. Bobby, please mark this. And I, carve this audio out. Also send please, it to me in an email. Please note that I can admit when Sean is right. <laughs> and let's let's go back and look if Sean's ever admitted I'm right. No, but I and I I just it has it has it all because it has so much access, so many scenes where you're like, I cannot believe that I got this. The short version of American Factory, I'll try to summarize it, is that it's um a plant in Dayton, Ohio, that was closed, I believe, in 2010 after after 2008. Um, I believe it was a General Motors plant. Yes. And it is reopened by Fuyao, which is a Chinese manufacturing conglomerate. And so it is about reopening this factory and what happens when it is a Chinese company Um investing in America and working with American workers. And so it's about everything. It's about capitalism. It's about cultural ideologies, culture clashes, globalization, you know, labor movements, philosophy of like what it is to like what is life and what is work. And the amount of access they got in both China and in the U.S. is extraordinary. Um, They have 
a real sense of characters. And then it's just, it's about everything. It's amazing. Yes, the movie is directed by two filmmakers, Julia Reichert and Steven Bogner. And, you know, has some legacy. Julia Reichert made a movie called The Last Truck Closing of a GM Plan in 2009, which is about this plan. And, or maybe, I believe it's this plan in Moraine, Ohio. And that is where the relationship began Mm -hmm. with this part of the country and with this idea of the American worker and what they represent and how they're treated and how they treat the world. And the movie is incredibly deep about these ideas. Most movies are just a mile wide and an inch thick. And this movie goes way into the psyche of people who have lost their jobs and regained jobs and what that means. It goes way into the psyche of really what corporations think and how they treat people. You're right that the access is amazing. The filmmaking is amazing because so much of the work that is done in the movie is this intensely physical work. Fu Yao in the movie is largely focused on glass in, in this Dayton manufacturing plant. And so the idea of glass is this incredible metaphor for everything happening in the movie because it is so important and so transparent and so vital, but so breakable and so precious. And it's just extraordinary what the movie is able to convey about the things it wants to say about our country and China and the future of the American workforce. Yeah, and I think it is really empathetic across the sides and curious without being heavy-handed. It doesn't totally pick a side. Everybody's a little right and everybody's a little wrong in this. Um, even though it's, you know, it's clear that the filmmakers have a point of view and have some interest. I think they have the most empathy with the workers, but I think that there is a strong case to be made coming out of the movie that's like, this is how capitalism works. Yes. And unfortunately, it's painful and people get hurt by it, but it is the system in which we exist. I mean, it really had me both while I was watching it and throughout the rest of the weekend. I watched it this past weekend just thinking about like my own personal values and what, you know, how I (laughs) compose my life and how much of that has been trained by the values of America and capitalism and how much of how much of what I think is right and what how I think that the world should be organized is actually true and how much of it is like totally fucked and is just a product of the way that I was raised and the part of the world that I happen to be born in. It's fascinating. I don't have any answers to any of that, by the way, but it really I can't remember a movie that is or really any sort of philosophical text, frankly, that because I usually have very little patience for that, but I can't think of anything that has engaged me on that level in recent memory. I agree. I'm I'm really glad that you liked it. I would I would recommend this as highly as any movie I've seen this year. It's really incredibly sophisticated and well made, and it's made in the in basically a verite and interview style, which a lot of these films are like that. Mm-hmm. You know, Knock Down the House is very much like that. The Biggest Farm is very much like that. Um, the Great Hack is very much like that. It's kind of following people in real time and then using a little bit of archival and a little bit of interview footage. The two movies, though, that I think have a chance to maybe upend American Factory or The Cave are Apollo 11, Mm -hmm. which we've talked about, which is entirely archival and which is just an incredible feat of of movie making, and Diego Maradona. And I think if Asif Kapedia had not won for Amy, he would be winning for this movie. And it's kind of the opposite of American Factory. You know, it's not a big ideas movie. It's a it's a lone man movie. It's like a it's a portrait of, I guess what he has called the final chapter in his child genius trilogy. So Senna is about mm-hmm. a race car driver. Amy is about a singer. Diego Maradona is about an athlete, a soccer player. 
Same thing. I don't know where this footage came from. I don't know how he got all this footage. It's this is astonishing. It's yeah. cr- absolutely crazy how much how how much we see of Maradona, who we should say the, the film captures largely his career in the mid to late 80s when he joins Napoli, the club in Italy, and resurrects that club from a, a, a long stretch of struggle and brings them to the top of the standings and and they experience great success. And it's part of this pattern that he creates in his life where he goes somewhere. It's immensely difficult at first. He manages to change the culture of the place. They win, have great success, and then he spirals out of control and has to leave. And it's this very delicate portrait of a person experiencing fame and uh, joy and pain and um, repression all at the same time. There's so much footage in it, again, that you're just like, I can't believe this exists. I can't believe they just have so much footage of him, you know, working out on the treadmill with things around him or at the at the club or just so much contemporaneous stuff. And also a lot of it is um, archival footage from him playing soccer, which, you know, I confess I don't have, I had not seen as much of it as maybe I should have. I did have to text Chris Ryan halfway through watching this and being like, so who are the greatest soccer players in the world? And, his Mar- and he confirmed that Maradona was one of them. And I was like, great. Okay. I believe Chris um, has Maradona at four on his list. Yeah, I think that's true. Which might be controversial. But I just, you know, I just needed to know that he's in, he's in the group. I assumed, but you don't always want to assume. I will say, I think it does have a little bit in common with American Factory, just in the sense of There is a type of documentary that is like, here is our thesis, and then we will explain to you what happened, and we will use the experts, and we will—it's kind of like basic feature journalism, which I I enjoy. I don't mean to malign that at all, but it's— Wikidocs. They're Wikipedia docs. Yeah, Yeah. it's neatly tied up. It's like, would you like to know more about this? Here is what you need to know more about. Mm -hmm. And Maradona, for me, opened as many questions um, as it did answers. I mean, I did walk away convinced that he's an incredible— uh, athlete and soccer player. I also just think that they just weren't really goaltending in the 80s, but that's fine. Um, it's a hot take. And, well, I just was watching it and I was like, this is not like the World Cup, at least that I have watched recently. But it does raise so many questions about um, fame and how he was treated in the world of soccer and obviously substances and the Italian justice system and... Um, how we remember people and even how we, it it was so interesting. I watched this movie and then went back and I was like, what's the last thing I knew about Diego Maradona? And it was like some 2018 World Cup memes. Those memes look very different after having watched the film Diego Maradona. I had a completely different understanding of them. But I think it both presents a really full portrait of a person, but also leaves it to your own interpretation. Agree. I think when our heroes become a joke is a fascinating subculture of analysis. He doesn't really become a joke in the telling of this movie, but you can see how he gets to that place. On the other hand, you can also see the way that he, it looks like he's got the ball on a string when he's ro- running down the field. Yeah. It's just it's wild, mind blowing, tr- truly mind blowing stuff. If you, and I'm not, I'm not a soccer, hardcore soccer fan by any means, but it's absolutely amazing. And also amazing to see him, in a club in Italy at two o'clock in the morning, clearly just coked out of his gourd, mm-hmm. having the time of his life and also kind of withering away in real time. I mean, there are very few movies. Imagine a movie like this about LeBron James in 2049. I mean, that's really what this is. It's a, it's a, it's an athlete of that magnitude, mm-hmm. of that power, of that skill, of that notoriety kind of felled in real time. It's just completely fascinating movie and a great subject for a documentary. That's the other thing is yes. a lot of times... 
a lot of these movies that are on this list are, are good. You know, Ask Dr. Ruth is a good movie. She's Dr. Ruth. You know, it's, it's not, we're not at the, at the height of human experience here. It, she's had tremendous experiences and been very influential. But Diego Maradona has reached a level, just much like Amy, of fame and achievement that only probably a few hundred people in the world can relate to in, the, in really in the last hundred mm-hmm. years. So it's an absolutely amazing movie. Any, any other documentary notes you want to make before we get out of here? I think that's it. Like I said, I've only seen four. I've, you, you made a larger list, and I have seen some of these. Yeah, I think it's interesting that like a movie like Fire, which mm-hmm. was on Netflix about the Fire Festival, which is no doubt one of the most entertaining documentaries of the year, and certainly well-made by Chris Smith, who has made a number of great docs, including Jim and Andy a few years ago for Netflix, and he made American Movie many years ago. I don't know why a movie like that can't contend. I guess it's possible it didn't have a theatrical release, so that might be the issue at, at, right. at hand. But that, too, is the kind of movie where if the, if this category wants to youthen itself a bit, young it up a little bit, yeah. you may want to I mean, consider— it's, it's certainly the internet pick. It, it is. It's the internet pick. And I, I don't—I guess the Oscars has not yet reached the phase where there are enough voters who are on Twitter all day. But it is the, it is the kind of that documentary of right. the year. It certainly, it created an idea and an archetype. I mean, it's like, if you want to give the Oscar to the most referenced, then I think like the the fire festival, like and the fire and the fire festival created the whole scammer universe that now we just talk about all of the time. Keep your eyes peeled in 2020 for my documentary about Thanos. Okay. Oh boy. In the meantime, let's go to my conversation now with Asif Kapadia, where we'll talk more about Diego Maradona. I'm delighted to be joined by Asif Kapadia, the filmmaker behind Senna and Amy and his new film, Diego Maradona. Thank you for being here with me. Thanks for having me. I have a very important question right at the top of our chat here, which is when you are attempting a biographical documentary of a world historical figure, where do you start? What is the first thing that you do? Um, I would say the first thing, it depends on the character, but really I'm looking for a, a personality. I'm looking for charisma. I'm looking for drama. So I suppose the first thing I would say is, is there enough to make this a movie? And and in this case, how did you come to realize that there was enough for Maradona, who is, you know, of course, a very well-known figure, but also maybe doesn't, we don't know as much about this part of his life that you spotlight. I, I grew up in England, so I'm a football fan. I've grown up playing football, watching football. So I'm very aware of Diego Maradona and his, his story. Um, I saw a lot of the World Cups. Um, what happened in his particular case is when I, in the mid-90s, I read a book about him. I was still a student at the time. And this book went into his kind of life and kind of the chaos and the madness around him. And I guess that was the kind of moment when a kind of germ of the idea first went into my head and said, you know, wouldn't it be great one day if you ever got the opportunity to make a film about Diego Maradona? So we're going back to 1996 right now. It took a long time for this to come to fruition, but it was always in the back of my head that if you were going to do a film about a footballer, he would be the guy to do the film about. This is the first in your sort of trilogy of child geniuses in which the subject is still alive. Did that make the the kind of composition of this movie, the production of it, more complicated than Senna or Amy? Honestly, they're all really difficult in different ways. Senna was difficult because it was the creation of this style. You know, I'd never made a documentary before. Mm-hmm. I never made a documentary 
in any way, but the idea of doing it entirely out of archive, which is how I wanted to do it. I wanted it to feel like a movie where you were watching the story in the present. So that took a long time. I was like five years in the creation. Amy was tough because it was so painful. A young girl died. Nobody wanted to talk to me. They Nobody trusted the press or the media. So I come along and it was only like a year after she died. It was really raw. It was very challenging to get the trust for people to open up and to talk to me. Maradona's tricky because he's Diego Maradona. Okay, He's this kind of mythical character. He's still alive. I wanted to talk to him and interview him, but is he the most reliable witness for his own story? I'm based in London. The story takes place in Italy, in Naples. Diego was living in Dubai, and most of the key voices were in Buenos Aires, in Spanish and in Italian, both of which I don't speak the languages. Okay, So this film was a challenge in a whole different set of ways. So how did this project come to you? Was it your idea to pitch it? Because I know that for Amy and Senna, the circumstances were slightly different. Did this one originate with you? Do you know, all of them, what happens is people kind of approach me with different stories and different characters and my producers come to me with different projects. And I guess the instinctive answer is, "Mm, this person I'm interested or maybe not. I don't think that person I want to spend three years on. With Senna, Amy and Diego Maradona, in different ways, they kind of came to me But with each of them, I have this initial gut reaction of, yeah, I want to do that story or no, not interested, not for me. And Maradona came about because, like I said, I'd read this book about him and then a producer got in touch. Around the time of the London Olympics, we're talking about back in 2012, just after I'd made Senna and said, this guy, this producer says, you know, I think I've got access to some a private archive of Diego Maradona footage. Would you be interested in making the film? And I'm like, I'm a big fan of football. I think it's an amazing story, but it seems too close to having made a Brazilian sporting hero to go off and make the film about the Argentinian sporting hero straight away. <laughs> so I actually said, look, I don't think the timing's right for me. I went off, I did Amy, I did various other things. And then the project came back again. And at that point, having made two of the films, I thought, okay, now I'm ready to do this because Maradona's still alive, because his life is longer, because he's such a challenging character. And I guess I was older. And I think partly Maradona's story is about someone who gets old and has to deal with, you know, having this incredible talent when he's a sportsman, but made lots of mistakes along the way and dealing with his mistakes, or sometimes in his case, never quite dealing with the mistakes that he's made in the past. And I was ready to deal with that kind of idea of getting old as well in this film. Did the fact that a lot of that archival material that you said was presented to you originated in Italy during that period in Maradona's life push you towards focusing on that period? Or was that just a more of a creative decision that you made after looking at the scope of everything that he had done in his life? Yeah, it's a two-way thing. I think partly my job is to kind of find a character and find a story and research everything. But then also you have to go with the material. You have to go with the drama. And actually, having researched everything from Argentina to Barcelona to him hanging out in Cuba with Fidel Castro and everything that he did, you know, in the 94 World Cup, really, whenever we looked at it, whenever we viewed it and screened it, the story always seemed to work best when we got to Naples. That there was just something that clicked and it happened to also be where the footage was at its strongest. And in the end, I'm making a movie here. I'm trying to make something that people are going to watch. I want the story to be visual and to be told to you via the images. And the best images and the kind of most intimate footage we had definitely was the period of time when it was in Naples. The biggest story was Naples. That's where he wins the World Cup. That's where he wins the two championships of Napoli who have never won before and never won since to this day. So it felt like in terms of his sporting achievements, Italy and Naples was the story. Naples itself is an amazing character. And it just felt like all of the key problems that he has had to deal with in the rest of his life 
really all started in Naples. So if we're going to take someone's life, and he's led a very long and complex life, you've always got to kind of find the essence to the story. And in the end, the kind of the center point and the essence of it was Italy and Naples. Seven years, he's never spent any anywhere near as long anywhere else. Seven years was the longest he stopped on his journey in life. And so that's really how it came about. So it's a kind of synergy between the story, the drama, the characters you meet, but also the footage in order to tell the story. When you and your producers spoke to him about this, did you make it clear that this was the period that you want to focus on? Or was there just an understanding that you would try to make something about his achievements and some of the struggles that he had? Yeah, no, I, I honestly, I know nothing when I start these movies. All I know is a character. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I'm going to talk about everything. And the producers would often say, you should focus on this or you should be doing that. And I'm like, no, I need to know everything. I need to see everything. Because even though we focus on Naples, the characters that we're dealing with, like his ex-wife, like, like his trainer, Signorini, all of these other people, sometimes are outside of the scope of the story. Mm-hmm. But I find them, you know, they may be in Argentina, they may be in the latter part of his life, um, but they other people to help explain what is going on in the story. So I kind of frustrate everyone often. I drive the researchers and all of the team mad because I want to know everything and see everything. And only once we've got it all, do we start to focus it down in order to reduce it to the movie that you see now. Um, So when I spoke to Maradona, no, I wanted to ask him about everything. Um, I didn't realize at that time it was going to be Naples. I'd, I'd say one of my producers always felt that was the story. But I, I we had a screening of a like three-hour cut that had it was 45 minutes before we got to Naples. And it was another half an hour after he left. Wow. It was, the film was great. It was really interesting, but it's too long. It was too long. And no matter what we did, the movie always just seemed to click and kick off when he arrives in Italy. And so we had to, you know, the opening of the film is this crazy drive. It's like French Connection or something. It's mm-hmm. five minutes long. That five minutes in a previous cut was 45 minutes. And it went into everything that happened to him in Argentina, everything that happened to him in Barcelona. And it was great. But what's interesting about Maradona's life is he's a kind of character that goes somewhere. Everyone wants him. Everyone wants him there. He lo- he's loved. It goes well. He does something brilliant. And then it will go wrong and end badly. And he move on to the next town. And everyone loves him. And it's great. And he does something fantastic. And it will go wrong again. He'll get done for doping or he'll get in trouble or he'll get banned. And he leaves and he goes to the next town. And he essentially repeats the story. So his fi- this film, when we did a long version, was a repetition of the same story happening again and again and again. So it was quite unusual to watch because you feel like, oh, I already know this. I'm just in a new place. But the biggest story was Napoli, and that's really why we chose that. Did you find him self-reflective in any way about that kind of pattern that you just identified? It's a good question. You know, maybe Diego, had I met him, would have been self-reflexive. I think Maradona and the person that I met, he never really looks back. He's never made a mistake. The world's against him. You Mm -hmm. know, he's fighting his lone battle. So he he doesn't necessarily see it. He doesn't even, he won't, He probably wouldn't believe the kind of thesis of there's Diego and there's Maradona. As far as he's concerned, it's just me. I'm just one guy. It's what everyone else says. So sometimes, you know, even though I met him and I interviewed him for quite a long time, he was living in Dubai at the time and I had nine hours of interviews with him. Wow. So whenever you hear his voice in the film, that's from my interviews. But he's also at times quite an unreliable witness. That's why he's at Diego Maradona. He will create history. He will create a story depending on the mood he's in today. So I'm meeting this guy in Dubai but I'm asking him questions almost about another character I never met. At this point, did you know that you wanted to use this style that you've honed over these last three films for this film as well? Or was there a universe in which maybe you used a different kind of documentary style here? I did. In my very first meeting with him, I went to Dubai 
with a crew, a full camera crew, sound recorders, translators. There's eight, nine of us, you know, two producers, because everyone wants to meet Maradona as well, okay? So we go there, and the kind of cliche meeting with Diego Maradona happens. We're told to arrive on a certain date. We go there, we hire a studio, bring equipment, and we're ready to go, and then we, he, we're waiting, and we're waiting, and he doesn't turn up, and then his people say, oh, he's not feeling well today, try tomorrow. Okay, we do it all again tomorrow. Same thing, waiting, waiting. Not today, tomorrow. So basically, we spent a week in Dubai doing nothing, waiting for him. So I was like, you know what? That's it. I'm not doing this again. I'm going home. But I'd just quite like to say hello. So I managed to talk myself into his home. And we had a five-minute meeting, having waited for a week, where we said hello. He said, we're going to make a great film together, but I'm not feeling well right now. I'm like, okay, fine. I flew back to London. Now, I've made two feature films, Senna and Amy, where I never met the lead character. So I'm like, I'm really happy to just go away and make the film without him. And actually, it was his people that got in touch months later and said, uh, do you want to talk to him? And I said, I'm only going to talk to him if he's ready to talk to me. And they said, no, 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 this time he's ready to talk. So I went back this time. But because of the complexity of always getting to him and getting in the door, I decided not to bring the crew. So I went back to the kind of old fashioned way, which is I go there with a minimal entourage. I did the sound recording myself. And that way we started to build up a relationship when we started. So Initially, I wanted to do it differently and film him. But in the end, with everyone, I think there's a performance that comes with being on camera. And I'm a huge fan of radio. I'm a huge fan of podcasts. I'm a, I'm a fan of audio being actually more honest than the visual medium. So what I want to do is I want to talk to someone and I don't want a performance. I want to get down to some truth and I don't want them to feel like they're performing. I can do all the visuals using the archive. And so that is essentially my style. And in the end, I came back to what I felt like I do best. You're really speaking my language with the audio talk there. Um, (laughs) I'm a radio guy. You know, I've grown up. For me, that's always been my kind of way of experiencing the news or experiencing, you know, the world and learning back Back in the day when I used to listen to the BBC World Service and I'd be traveling and I'd have a little shortwave radio. So now we've got kind of digital things. I just think there's something. I know how uncomfortable I am when I'm on camera and there Mm -hmm. are lights on me. And I know I'm far more honest when I'm not being looked at. And I think that works with really famous people. They are sick of being filmed and presented in a certain way, but they forget the medium when they're talking. Do you know what Maradona makes of the film? Has he seen it? Does he have feelings about it? He hasn't seen it. He, I tried many times to show it to him over a year ago. And, and it's interesting. It, it went back to the cycle, as I talked about earlier on, to that first meeting where we spent ages chasing after him. And the more we chased, the more he cancelled. And then we get to the end of the process and I'm like, it's all been going really well. And I say, look, can I come back to Dubai and show you the film? And suddenly he was too busy and he's traveling and he's here and he was there. Now, is that just because he's busy? Is that because he doesn't care? Is that because he doesn't even know who I am? He doesn't remember me? Or is that because he's worried about what might be in the film because he never looks back? He never deals with the mistakes or his past. He just moves on to the next place. I'll leave it to the audience, really, because when you see the film, you'll have to decide, is he ready to look at it? Now, I'm I'm still trying. In two weeks, I'm going to Buenos Aires, and the plan is once again to go to his home and to show him the film, and we'll find out in two weeks. Do you think there's any chance he's potentially snuck into a movie theater somewhere in Europe and checked out the film and just not told anyone? No, he's been in Mexico the, the, the whole time where the films come out in Europe. I mean, we tried to bring him to Cannes, to the film festival. We tried everything. Absolutely no chance because he's been out in Sinaloa. He's been coaching out in Mexico and then he's been back in Buenos Aires. And the truth is nobody out there has a copy. And, and we're setting that up now. I think, I think it's only going to happen if I can kind of 
either he comes to a theatre and we do a private screening or right now what's more realistic is we go to him and we show it to him in his home surrounded by his friends and his family and trusted people who will kind of make him feel calm I think he gets nervous you know he's like he's insecure that's the thing that people can't see and that's what the film's about he's actually quite a vulnerable character at times yet he's covered up with all his kind of macho Latin bravado but underneath it he's kind of a child at times No it's true you absolutely capture that in the film you know I wanted to ask you You've obviously done these three beautiful, celebrated documentaries. You've also done work in the narrative space. I'm kind of curious for you and your career where you see yourself going, having done this trilogy. And, you know, you've done series television and films. What what, what are you going to do next? You know, I, I, I always like a challenge. I, I try and push myself in, in kind of experiment, I guess. So I've made fiction films um, in the desert in India and in the North Pole. And then Senna came along and it was a change of style. I love sports. I've been quite happily in that medium. But I've also did, you know, directed some of Mindhunter, the series for David Fincher. So I, I, I suppose now the way the... While I've been making my projects, the industry's been changing. So now there's this whole kind of long-form thing going on. So I'm trying to find a project right now, and I'm thinking about things and reading a hybrid project that's somewhere between fiction and documentary. But I guess I want to deal with kind of the state of the world, politics right now, you know, where are we going? What are we doing to ourselves? Um, that seems to be the bigger story right now. So it might gut is I'm probably not going to be doing a biography next, but I'm going to try and do something on a sort of grander scale, bigger scale, but that's dealing more with kind of the state of politics and the world and what the hell are we doing? And if we don't sort ourselves out where we're going to, I think we're going into a dark place. What did you learn on the Mindhunter experience? I'm curious about that. I had a fantastic time. I was, weirdly enough, this is this explains how I work, okay? I actually went off to Pittsburgh to shoot that for David Fincher while we were prepping and researching the Maradona film. So the two things happened at the same time. Um, and Mindhunter came off the back of me meeting David Fincher because he'd seen Senna and really loved it. I mean, it's a mad story. I'm sitting there having a pizza with David Fincher <laughs> while we're doing pre-production. And I'm like, how did you, why am I here? You know, how did you even find me? And he goes, well, the interesting thing is, you know, my best friend turns up one day, knocks on my door, says, you got to watch this. And his best friend's Brad Pitt. So Brad Pitt turns <laughs> up with a copy of Senna. And, and Fincher and Brad Pitt then go to like Steven Soderbergh's house to watch it. And it's just nuts. You know, this could be like a totally made up story, but I'm, I'm going to believe it. So they, they knew about me because of Senna. Then I made Amy and Charlize Theron, who was one of the producers on the show, had seen Amy and she was nominated for Mad Max. So she must have recommended me to Fincher. And I had an interview with him while I was on the awards run. And essentially what I said, I read the script for the series and it was an amazing script by a Brit, Joe Penhall. And I said, look, I've basically spent the last few years of my life making this film, Amy, where I'm investigating a crime. Some young, some, a young woman died. No one seemed to care. No one seemed to do anything about it. No one got in trouble. So what I did is I met people and I brought a microphone and I recorded interviews with them. And using those interviews where I met a lot of narcissists, I met a lot of, I'd say, virgin on psychopaths, I tried to create the narrative of the story. And that's essentially what the show's about. So I explained, this is what I do. This is what I've been doing for the last three years. And somehow or another, that kind of connection worked with Fincher and went off, went off and did the show together. It was a great experience. My first experience of doing television. That's fascinating. I see if you know, I end every episode of this show by asking filmmakers, what's the last great thing that they've seen? I'm curious, you know, are you watching a lot of films these days, a lot of series? What have you been enjoying? I have, I'm mainly a film guy, I have to say. Um, the, I was at the Cannes Film Festival, and I would say the last great film I saw, which is about to open here, I believe, is called Parasite. 
Oh, it's and wonderful. It is a Korean film and it's amazing. I saw it at a world premiere. I was right in front of the director and I said, I think this film's going to win. It did win. I just met him because we showed Diego Maradona at the Telluride Film Festival and the director was there. And so I would say Parasite is the film to look out for. Um, there's a couple of other films. I just saw also Fernando Mireles's film, The Two Popes, which is amazing and brilliant and funny, but also got a hell of a lot going on there. So those would be the two films that I think will be, both of them will be in the mix at award season. I love those. I just saw those at Telluride as well. Those are wonderful recommendations. And I would encourage everyone. Yeah, 100%. Those are two of my favorites that I saw there. And um, everyone should see your film as well. I think it's your best work and I really enjoyed it. So thank you very much for doing the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks to Asif Kapadia and thank you, of course, to Amanda Dobbins. Please tune in to The Big Picture later this week where Jason Concepcion and I will be taking a deep, 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 deep dive into the world of the Joker. <laughs>